I'm very thankful uh, for the words that were said. What he said last, let your guard down. Um, The only time my life is happy is when I return over and over and over to a place of complete vulnerability and unconditional surrender before the Lord. When I live before Him emotionally as if I'm naked. That's complete. There's no protection. In fact, Scripture uses that terminology that we should come before Him boldly to approach His throne of grace boldly to obtain mercy and favor to help in time of need. And then it says, because all things are open and naked before the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. And so I I would put that in maybe language of today and say God already knows you better than you know yourself. So relax. And let down your guard is a, is a, <laughs> a good way of putting it. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I want you to pray for me today. Brother Brad mentioned this is the first time this year that I've um, st- stood to preach a prepared message. I sort of preached on the spot last Sunday. The Lord helped me and there was no time to prepare and worry about it because I wasn't planning on it. Today I feel like I know exactly what he wants me to preach but I don't know how to do it. And, and I need his help because I want this to be beneficial, not just to your minds, but to your hearts. As I was sitting there, I was praying in my spirit, this is, this is my heart today, I want you to know this. This is what I told the Lord, I need you. I cannot do anything useful without your spirit coming upon me and helping me. I believe that with all my heart. And I felt he put this, this reminder in my heart from Romans. We have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but we've received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And it goes on, it says his spirit bears witness with our spirits that we're the sons of God. And also he makes intercession for us. With groanings that can't be uttered, in ways that we don't even know to pray, God, through His Holy Spirit, intercedes on our behalf. And so whatever I try to preach today, that's in the back of my mind, that God loves me more than I can ever love myself, and He knows what I need better than I ever would. Uh, But what's on my heart, I want to talk to you about obedience in service to the Lord. Obedience. And... uh, if you feel some type of inward disappointment or grumbling or like, ah, oh, man, that's not going to be a very good message. It doesn't sound very exciting. Who wants to talk about obedience? Then I would say to you, that is because you don't understand what biblical obedience is. And I have been there. Let's read. I'll go right into Scripture. 1 Samuel chapter 15. I want to read the text on my heart. We might give some of the background in a moment. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22 and 23. Samuel speaking to Saul. It says, And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offering and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. 
For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Common quoted passage, but what is so powerful about the context of it is that the prophet came up and Saul approached him in a posture of complete religious uh, self-superiority. He thought that he was exactly where he should be with the Lord. His condition was so bad in God's mind that the Lord sent Samuel down there and he told him ahead of time, I regret that I even allowed this man to be appointed as king. And so he goes down there to tell him a word from the Lord. If you look a little bit earlier in the chapter, 11th verse, the Lord speaking, It repents me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he's turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried to the Lord all night. And when Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told to Samuel, saying, Saul uh, came to Carmel, and behold, set he set him up a place and has gone about and passed on and gone down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. If we understand what this passage is saying, it will alarm us. Saul thought he was being obedient. So much so that the man of God comes before him and instead of approaching with some type of fear or trepidation, he approaches almost with this, I almost see him standing upright erect and saying, you know, bless you Samuel, I've done what the Lord required. It's basically what he said. What that tells me in my heart is we can be so caught up in our own perception of religious duties that we think we're fulfilling that we can lose sight entirely of what obedience actually is. Some of you don't know me that well at all, and if you might have um, still sitting there like thinking, what is Brother Josh going to say? What's in my heart with this message? I think if we hear what the Lord wants, it will give us a sense of freedom. That, that's where my heart's at. And so if it starts out sounding harsh, stick with me and listen. We've already seen prior to this passage that I'm reading that Samuel is a man who doesn't have a heart after the Lord like David does. He does he's not like that. And if you read in the 13th chapter, he had been commanded by the prophet to wait for him to arrive. He waited seven days and he got to the point where he looked around and his power of analysis, his mind, he observed the circumstances surrounding him. He disregarded the command of God and determined that it would be better for him to make a decision to help the people than to obey the simple command God had given. You look at the 13th chapter and the simple command was to wait for the prophet of the Lord to come and offer the sacrifice. Samuel looked around, got scared, uh, listened to the voice of the people. That's what he claimed. And when you read in that chapter, it's, the prophet came to him and said, What have you done? He arrived right after Saul had finished making the offering. And King Saul, as a king, he had no right to make this offering. And it was so serious. His rebellion against God, even though on the outside it looked like sincere religious worship. What could be better than the king offering a religious 
sacrifice to God. I mean, we wish for things like that with our president. And the first time a president says anything religious, everybody just, oh, wonderful, wonderful, he's of God. We see with incomplete vision. We don't understand the simplicity of the commands of God. Saul had a simple command to obey. Wait on the Lord. He waited until he thought it was long enough and he stopped. And in doing so, he didn't just do a job that was somebody else's job. He actually became disobedient to the point that Samuel later told him, this kind of disobedience is just like witchcraft and idolatry. I don't want any of us to be confused, so let me say it clearly. You can come to church, you can sing the songs, you can pray the prayer, you can go through the motions and be worshiping Satan. God's not impressed with our religious activity. And that sounds awfully harsh. That's why I said stick with me. I'll read this again. Samuel says to Saul, Does the Lord have his great delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And then he says, Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. You have rejected the word of the Lord and he will reject you from being king. That's how serious it was. And so we see, if we look at this story, that Saul had an opportunity to obey God. He knew how to obey God. He chose to do it a way that he thought was acceptable. And so what I want us to consider today is we think about this story as the backdrop. And you read the rest of Samuel, you'll see the kingdom was ripped away from Saul. He died a tragic death. It was given to a man who loved the Lord. What is obedience? Maybe that's the first thing Saul should have asked. See, Saul at some point, and this is the point, we can, we can get caught up in what we're doing, that we think we're doing what God wants, because it seems to advance His cause. And the Lord is more interested in us worshiping Him than advancing what we think His cause is. I fall into that trap. I, want to, I don't know if some of you are wired like I am, but let me step back for a moment and tell you how I am. I'm the kind of person that my nature wants God to give me marching orders for five years in the future and then leave me alone and let me go do it. Lord, when I'm done, I'll check back in with you. And so my entire life has been this repeated reminder of my own powerlessness that constantly I have to come back before the Lord over and over, and actually say these words, Lord, I don't know what to do. You have to help me. I think in the last year, that's been my most frequent prayer, not even a request, but a statement of a realization of the truth in my life. God, you have to help me. And so I'm realizing what God wants from me, and I think what He wants from all of us, is not for us to go do something good for Him. He wants our hearts. He wants our lives. He wants our attention. He wants our worship. He wants everything about us. I believe that 
in answering the question what obedience is, and maybe if we defined it simply, obedience would be, this is just my definition, doing what a person who has authority over you wants you to do, voluntarily. So first of all, for us to obey, the person telling us to do something really needs to have the right to tell us. The Lord has taught us this dynamic in Scripture, and it's in the commandments. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. First commandment with promise. And God is our Heavenly Father. That Scripture I mentioned at the beginning, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. He's our Daddy. He's, he loves us with such tender love and affection. And at the same time, just like a father, just like a mother, has the right to tell their child what to do. They have that right. That authority. And the child should obey because they're told to. It's interesting how inwardly rebellious we are by nature. Because anytime somebody makes a statement like that, there are people who inside, what if my parent tells me to do something bad? What if they tell me to build a bomb? When's the last time your dad told you to do that? Honestly. Our Heavenly Father doesn't make mistakes. He's not like human fathers and human mothers. And so that parallel that they have the authority to tell their children what to do, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me, to himself. And he has absolute supreme power and authority, and therefore whatever he says, we ought to do. That's what obedience is. So the first thing we need to know, what does God want? And then we need to do it. That's obedience. That's as simple as I can put it. And if you get nothing out of this message, maybe dwell on that. God, what do you want? How can I do it? I believe, though, that the only way to truly obey God in a biblical manner, that obedience and fear and love are all continuously, actively present. I don't believe we can obey God as the Bible teaches unless we have a proper fear of the Lord. We'll get into some scriptures on that. At the same time, I don't believe we can truly obey God in a scriptural manner unless it comes from a place of love. And we can ask even practically, does a person who claims to love God really love Him if he doesn't obey what he says? I've seen that in congregations so many times, and maybe some of you have too, where somebody maybe gets up and testifies or does some act of worship in the service and they seem so sincere and then they go out and live exactly like the world. Then maybe they repent and come back the next week and do the very same thing. That's exactly like what Saul was doing. Saul was focused on his kingdom. He was focused on his own plans, his own ego. And he said, I will try to get the blessing from God without actually waiting on the presence of God. You read in the passages here that we were reading, there was a time that he came before this sacrificial offering and asked the Lord for an answer and God didn't answer him and he went ahead and did what he wanted. We can be like that. And it's a danger. I mentioned I believe obedience and love are inseparable. And I haven't been a parent yet. 
But one of my favorite things in life is to watch godly parents interact with their children. And the way that you can see the delight that comes when the child does something the parent wants, especially when they're old enough to have their own personality and, and will and to do what they want, when they do it because it pleases their parent. I asked a teacher friend of mine recently, I said, what pleases you most from your students? And she said, I'm most pleased when I know that that student has done the best that he can. Isn't that something like how it feels as a parent? I think that's how God looks at us. He, He wants us to do the best. He wants me to do the best I can do. He doesn't expect me to do the best Brad can do. Or the best Brother Jonathan can do doesn't expect me to be anybody else or to have anybody else's talents. He wants me to do what I can do from a place of love for Him. And at the same time from a place of fear of Him. We talk a whole lot about love and not much about fear. And then sometimes the people who talk about fear don't talk about love very much. But these are all joined together. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. The only way to keep the commandments is through obedience of doing what God said. And he says that that is the definition of whether we actually love him. Not whether we get up emotionally in a service and say something. But whether we actually keep his words. True obedience toward God and a proper fear of the Lord are inseparable. If you look in Scripture and notice this phrase, either the man who feared the Lord, or those who fear the Lord, or if you look in the New Testament, you see this repeated over and over, he feared the Lord with all his house. The followers of God came to have this label of identity where they were called God-fearers. And even now, we refer to some people as a God-fearing man or a God-fearing woman. And we think we know what we mean, but I wonder if we really think about what we're saying. Do we really fear the Lord? You may say, what are you talking about all this fear for? God is loving and God forgave me and there's no condemnation of them that are forgiven by Him. That's all true. But Jesus also said, don't be afraid of him who can destroy the body. I'll tell you who you should fear. Fear him who can destroy both body and spirit and soul in hell. That's who you should fear. Rough paraphrase. Jesus told us we should be afraid of God. And he knows better what I should do than I know myself. What does that look like? Let me take each one of these components and try to just... Mention a little bit of them. If I'm scared, if I, scared is not the right word. If I fear the Lord, how will that manifest in my life? Just a couple Old Testament examples. Daniel. We mentioned him in, in, in Sunday school. And God gave him a gift of discerning dreams and visions. And he feared the Lord and the way it manifested that we can see it in his life 
When he began to seek the direction and the divine guidance of the Lord, he says it so casually, but he says, I was sick certain days. And if you read that in context, it looks to me like he was in a coma for a few days after the interaction with the power of God. The Lord comes to the prophet Isaiah and he says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in a land of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have beheld the Lord of glory. The Lord shows him and he takes this uh, coal and, and puts it on his lips and says, I've purified you. Job, when he really began to understand who God was, he demonstrated the fear of the Lord by saying this, I had heard of you before by the hearing of my ears, but now my eye sees you. And therefore, I repent in dust and ashes, I abhor myself. John the Baptist feared the Lord, and he understood who was coming after him, the one who was preferred before him. And he looked at him, and he said, he must increase, but I must decrease. The fear of the Lord in our lives, this is the way it would look. We won't walk around trembling, terrified all the time. Because there is no fear in perfect love. And perfect love casts out fear because fear has torment. The fear of the Lord doesn't produce torment in our lives. It produces a healthy understanding of who God is and who we are. And the fear of the Lord actually makes me realize my frame that I'm just dust. The fear of the Lord gives me freedom to be a human. To be weak. And to be frail and to recognize that there are jobs I can't do on my own and things that I don't have the power or capacity to accomplish. The fear of the Lord does that. The fear of the Lord actually gives me peace. And it will give you peace when you recognize what that means. And the fear of the Lord, true biblical fear of the Lord as taught by God, it doesn't make us afraid of life. It doesn't make us walk around feeling condemned. You look at Scripture, read the whole thing, and notice when did God ever beat up somebody for their sin? When did He come back over and over and over and tell them how terrible they were? He gave them a space to repent. If they repented, He forgave them, and He never mentioned it again. Jesus is a picture, in tangible form, bodily representation of the fullness of God's triune nature standing in front of us as a man and he looked at the woman who was caught in the act of adultery and he said where are your accusers neither do I condemn you go and sin no more I believe this is how this is my image of God that's how I think he looks at me And I believe that scripture I quoted earlier. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, but there's a second part to it, who walk not after the Spirit, but after the flesh. If you have been saved by God's grace, if you have had a supernatural spiritual birth where you became something different than you were before that, that's what we call being saved. I remember the day my life was transformed. And the way I looked at people, the way I thought about things, and my opinions about the things that I was doing in my life changed, transformed immediately. I wasn't the same person. On the outside, I maybe didn't look that different, but inside I was a new creature, a new creation. 
Once that happens to you and you're trying to serve the Lord, you're trying to walk after the Spirit instead of after the flesh, which means you're not just doing whatever you want, whatever you desire, oh, God will forgive me later. But you're actually trying to serve Him. He doesn't look at you with condemnation because He looks at you through Jesus. And that's where the... I want you who are saved to hear that and experience the freedom that is found in Christ. He has forgiven you. If you've been forgiven, now forgive yourselves. God's not impressed with us beating ourselves up. He has the power to judge. And if He has determined that someone else has met the requirements for my sin to be pardoned, who am I to question? So be free in your salvation if you're truly saved. Give yourself permission to forgive yourself. Give yourself permission to like yourself. I I won't ask for a show of hands, but I wonder how many of you feel like God likes you. I've noticed most religious people don't seem to think God likes them. You know how you can tell that? What do you like about yourself? What's your favorite thing about yourself? If you have trouble answering that, you don't understand how God looks at you. I've said this before in a message, and I'll tell you, my favorite thing about myself is my childlike amazement toward the world. That when I forget all the obligations and all the things that I think I'm supposed to be doing, I look all around me like a three-year-old and just say, wow. And everything amazes me. That's okay. God gave me that to have joy in. I want to give you just a few scriptures that I wrote down on on, uh, fear. I think we'll see that this is all through the people of God. Acts 9.31 So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and were walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And it multiplied. Don't we all want the comfort of the Holy Spirit? If you know what He's like and you've experienced spiritual services and you've seen an outpouring, that's what we need. We need the Spirit of God. We need His presence among us. And what we must recognize is the Spirit comes, He follows obedience. Not as a a benefit-reward kind of thing. Not like karma. Not like you're good and I'll bless you. But the system God has put in place is that if we obey Him, the Holy Spirit can be present in that environment. In a mighty way. The Spirit of God will not be mighty in a congregation where there is disobedience. And if there is disobedience, when He comes, He reproves the individuals of sin. That's what Jesus taught us. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. And His children will have a refuge. Remember I told you fear actually gives you a sense of freedom. It also gives you a sense of confidence because you're no longer relying on yourself. You're recognizing who you should fear and that He has the power in everything. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. It amazes me how many seminary professors are atheists. Because the beginning of their knowledge didn't start with the fear of the Lord. It started in the intellect somewhere. And the intellect alone can never discern who God is. He has made us, 
not we ourselves. We're the sheep of His pasture, and He's made us to be able to discern Him with that inward part of us that was created after His image that we call the soul or the heart or the spirit. Whatever we term it, it's that intuitive part of us that senses who He is and where He is. And we can never analyze that with our minds. God can't be subject to things of the flesh. He's bigger than that. And that should produce a fear of the Lord in us. The fear of the Lord leads to life. And whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. You want to stop being afraid of life? Start being afraid of God. The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear Him and His righteousness unto children's children. Solomon sort of summed it up. I'm not going to end the message yet, but this could be the conclusion of the message. He said, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So many of us worry, spend time, think, Lord, what do you want me to do? What should I be doing? What's your will? We've already been told. Now, there's particular will about our specific life and situation, and what do you want me to do about this thing now, God? Sometimes he answers us in that. But generally, we've already been instructed what he wants. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's the whole duty of man. The New Testament says, this is the will of God. How could it be any more clear than that? People always say, what's the will of God? Well, the Bible says, this is the will of God, even your sanctification. So we're really interested. We really want to know. We already know what it is we should do. And simply, what we should do is seek the Lord. That's what gives peace and life, joy and everything we need. The only way we can know uh, what God wants is to know Him. The Bible is, is the best book that's ever been written. And I think it contains the mind of God and His purpose for humanity. And it's full of wisdom and wonderful teaching. But without the illumination of the Holy Spirit, it is just that. It's a wonderful book. The Bible is not God. Unfortunately, there are people who believe that the written Word of God actually is the Holy Spirit, and it's not. This written Word, given by inspiration from God to men to write down, must be illuminated by the Holy Spirit so we can understand the revelation truths inside of it. The only way you can know that is to know God. Scripture tells us who knows the spirit of a man except his own spirit inside of him. And in the same way, the only way we can know God is through that spiritual part of us. You must know his character and his personality as well as what he commands. God is more than the words on the paper in the Bible. Do you realize that? He's more than the sermons you've heard. He's more than a preacher's opinion of him. God is life and light. 
and illumination into your very being where you can look at the world in a way that you've never thought possible and you can't get that from a book or from going to church. Although both of those are wonderfully necessary. I mentioned this earlier, but Saul, I think his problem was he wanted to skip the hard work of obedience. He wanted to skip waiting on God's true presence and just get his blessing. And we see that contrast so clearly between Moses and the children of Israel at the time that he was leading them. They basically said, you go up on the mountain, talk to God, we're scared of Him, whatever He tells you, we'll do it. And Moses said, you don't understand. He hasn't come to tempt you in this way, but that His fear might be before you. And they said, no, 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 you go. And we're faced with that same dilemma even now, all the time. Do we really want God's presence or do we just want His blessings? And to me... I think where my heart is with this message, that's the difference in true biblical obedience and religious form. Do I really want God? If I don't, it's not really obedience. Jesus taught us multiple parables, but one of them that sticks out to me is the parable of the talents. And just to remind you, if if it's not... Present in your mind, uh, a landowner went away and he left behind three servants. And one of them he gave one talent, one two, and one five. And when he came back home, he asked for a reckoning. He wanted to know what happened with this that he had invested with them. You can think of it as money. You can think of it as gifts or opportunities. Or I think it encompasses all of that. And it's really interesting that even though a dollar figure is associated with it, the English word is talent. The same word we use for what I have the ability to do with myself. God has given you a particular set of abilities that He wants you to use for Him. And He doesn't expect you to use more than you have. In the parable, He came back home and the one who uh, had five got five more. He produced directly, proportionally to what He had been given. The one that had two had two more. The one that had one buried it right in the dirt. And his master said to him, what did you do? And he said, I knew you were a hard man. I knew that you reap where you haven't sown. And I was afraid. So I hid what you gave me. And he said, you wicked and unprofitable servant. Depart from me. Take the one talent from him and give it to the one with ten talents. For to him who hath shall be given to him to hath not shall be taken away. It seems very strange to us when our concept of fairness that we try to put on top of God, but God doesn't have to be fair as we think of it. He's God. And what he was saying is, you're responsible for what I've given you. Use it for me. But more importantly, in the context of this message, that parable shows us that what those people perceived about the character of God influenced the way they lived their lives and used their talents for him. You think God's mean, harsh, and severe? That's what you will experience. You think He's forgiving and loving? You'll see some of that in your life. But whatever your perspective of God, He is God and He doesn't change. Do we have an accurate view of Him? When we think about... 
I asked you earlier, mentioned obedience. Now that I've preached a little while, what do you think about when you think about obedience to God? Does it make you a little bit afraid? Does it make you a little bit annoyed? Does it make you a little bit uncomfortable? Or does it give you joy in your heart and an opportunity to love Him? That's what it should do. And yet, if I'm honest, most of the time I haven't thought about it like that. Because I haven't thought about God as this unconditionally loving Father all of my life. And that's exactly what He is. He's also the supreme judge of the universe. We must have an accurate view of Him. There's this idea, and I want to mention this too before I conclude. I mentioned obedience, love, fear are all, I believe, interconnected. And you can't really have one for God without the others. But I want us to think about what actual obedience may look like in the context of of love. We don't have kings around here, but if we did, I want you to imagine that you're in a crowd of people and a king comes by. And, you know, everybody has been commanded. They've been taught by precedent. They may even been taught by law that the way you obey when the king comes by is you bow down before him. Knees on the ground, hands on the ground, forehead on the ground. Complete humility before the king. The king drives by and somebody bows down like that and in their heart they're cursing him. They're grumbling inside and saying, I can't stand this king, I can't wait until he dies, I can't wait until somebody takes his place. On the outside, I would look at them and think they're obedient. They're bowed down, they seem to be reverencing the king, but God doesn't look on men as men look on men, He looks on the heart. There could be another person who's standing there reverently with tears running down their face because they know what a good king this king is. They know what they've been spared from. They're old enough that they remember the wars that he protected them from and the enemies he drove out of the land. And yet because of arthritis or some other condition, they are physically unable to bow. You tell me who's worshiping the king. Who is obedient to the king. And that is the heart of what God has given me today. He wants our hearts. He wants our love. He wants our attention. The burdens of the Lord are not grievous. And if you feel like what is obedience to God is making you miserable and taking your joy and robbing you of life, then you don't understand what obedience is. True obedience to God gives you life and gives you freedom and restores your joy. Just like that, what I just told you, that person standing there, they can't bow. They, on the outside, maybe they can't do what they should, but their heart is worshiping Him. And if He has any sense, if He's a good leader, He can look over and see that. Our God is a good leader. The best. He knows our hearts. He knows our frame. He knows our limitations. He knows what we can't do and what we can do. And He doesn't expect of us more than we can do. That's been one of the hardest lessons I'm trying to learn in my life, and I haven't arrived. I'm a lot harder on myself than God is on me. Do you all feel that way, any of you? I do. We have this idea, too, that the way we obey the Lord is to go about doing what He has commanded. As if it's an item for us to accomplish or something to check off a list or some uh, set of routines that we need to do. And But the truth is, it's not about our activity. It's not about what we're doing over and over. It's about our identity. 
The Lord doesn't just want us to go do religious things for Him. He wants us to be who He wants us to be while we're doing life. That's why we're taught whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink, do it unto the Lord. And it's hard for people who are trying to be sincere and who are conditioned in a religious environment to recognize that sometimes the very thing God wants from us is for us to embrace the liberty and freedom He's given us. Sometimes the way we obey Him is to actually be happy with the life He gave me. Not to bow to a religious form or worry about a bunch of rules and obligations. And I'm not talking about lawlessness. I'm talking about you embracing the blessings that God wants to give you in your life. You, you know what would make people want to be one of us? If they saw the kind of joy that we claim we have. And it was real. And they could look at us, not because we contrived it or self-manufactured it, and they said, I want what he has. Whatever he has is different. No matter how hard his life is, he's still thankful. No matter how difficult things are, he's still nice to me. I don't know if you all do, but I spend so much energy trying to figure out what it is God wants me to do, and I forget about who I am in the meantime. God is more interested about who I am than what I'm doing. Truly, what you do will come out of who you are. But don't think that it's all about what you do because your heart can be bad. We can observe all the religious forms and everything and be just like those Pharisees who Jesus said were like whited sepulchers on the outside clean and inside full of dead men's bones. He knows. He knows. Obedience. I want you to know this too, has more to do with your heart than your actions. Your actions will spring from a right heart that loves the Lord. But truly, God looks on the heart, and true obedience is something that's so deep inside, He knows if you're really obeying or not. Just like a good parent, once they really get to know their child, <laughs> they know if the kid did what they were supposed to, out of fear of punishment, out of uh, desire for reward, maybe they want a popsicle or some candy or whether they did it because they really want to please their parent. God knows. He knows the difference. I want to close with this verse. 2 Corinthians 3.6 He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The only way... We can worship God is with reverence and godly fear, which comes from a place of love inside of us. Let me try to put it this way, if I could. The fear of the Lord produces obedience, and obedience is love perfected for God. I believe that. It's all together. It's all combined. I want to tell you about a friend of mine. I'm telling you as an illustration, but I also want you to pray for him. I, I met this man about eight or nine years ago at my job, Navy veteran, filthy mouth. There was something about him that was light. And um, I could have felt like his language was bad enough that I shouldn't be corrupted by his influence. Shouldn't be around him. He's going to make me dirty. 
But there was something about it I was drawn to. We got to be friends. The more we got to be friends, the more I noticed his language started changing. And there started to be, every time we talked, there was this mutual building up. I had a love for him that God put in my heart. He ended up with really bad disability and had to go on disability retirement. But before he moved, he ended up moving to St. Louis. And before he moved, he came to our church. And that was a day I was so down and so discouraged. When he walked in, he had one of those walkers that you walk in on and then sit on. It was like light. And I wrote him an email later. And I said, seeing you come to the service was like the sun coming out suddenly after too many days with too much rain. That's how I felt. I got to know him more. And he heard me preach about salvation and about God delivering me, about this experience that he gave me. And he started telling me, he said, you know, I had an experience like that. He told me about being in a hospital bed. He was bit by a poisonous snake and almost died and told about God saving his soul in a way that I had no doubt. Went to visit him a few years ago, and, and he was even more ill by then. And he, uh, he said, uh, you want to go to my, my therapist with me? I thought we were going to a physical therapist because of his physical conditions. He could barely walk. We didn't. We went to a psychologist, that kind of therapist. We got in there, and I could tell she was very book-trained and very intelligent, and Alan, my buddy, older man, he's about 70 now, he, uh, <laughs> he says, hey, Josh, tell her about that experience you had. So I did. And then he told her his again. And I could see this glaze over her eyes and this blank stare like in all of her years of trying to fix people's psychological problems, she had never discovered the spiritual truth that God gives freedom. And so her patient and his friend were sitting there in her office talking about a truth she didn't even understand. I saw that. And I'm saying all that to say, I feel like somebody like him, although he was sort of tossed around about religion and wasn't sure about a lot of things and and didn't understand a lot of things, he brought so much more light and love to my life through obedience to God. And now I see him and he is one of the most publicly unashamed Proclaimers of God's goodness. I want to be like that. I don't want to just be religious. I don't want to just be good. God knows my frame. He knows my weakness. He knows my sin. And I know a whole lot of my sin. Maybe not as much as He does. But I don't want to hide it. I don't want to pretend I'm better than I am to try to impress somebody. I want to come before humanity and my brokenness and my weakness like my friend and say there's a God who delivered me. That's what obedience is. So I tell you that about him as an illustration, but I just got a text last night that he's um, in the hospital in St. Louis having double bypass surgery. And I want you all to pray for him. I don't have any doubt that he's saved. But I don't know about his family. And all these years since he moved, every time we talk, there's such a gentleness and a humility and a thankfulness in this man. It all started out with this callous exterior. And you know what? God doesn't look at that. Paul said, 
I was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in faithlessness. If you've been forgiven, go and sin no more. And if you haven't been forgiven yet, there is no sin that's too great to separate you from God except refusing to surrender to Him. You can have peace. comes from a place of unconditional surrender, of letting go, of letting God have His way, of recognizing there's something wrong inside of you and saying, I don't understand maybe, but Lord, you have to help. And then those of you who have experienced that and you really are His children, you can have peace even now in your life. And if you don't, surrender. Why do you want to be miserable? (laughs) Obey Him and have joy. All the other things will work out. That's what was on my heart today. I, I pray that it was a blessing and a strength. And uh, more than that, I just pray the Lord was lifted up. That's what I want. Because when Jesus Christ is glorified, that's when the Holy Spirit comes.